Has she overcome extreme difficulties and uncertainty? Does she have the maturity to lead a company and noteworthy mentors to guide her? These are the things that indicate whether an entrepreneur is capable of building a world-changing business. Another mistake I see investors make is putting too much weight on resume bling. They tend to choose entrepreneurs who come out of high-flying tech companies like Google, Apple, Tencent, and Microsoft. It's great that the CEO worked for a world-class company, but that doesn't mean this person is going to make a brilliant startup founder. Google has more than 60,000 employees, and Microsoft has 125,000. Not all of them were born to run a company. Some are much better suited to working at Google or Microsoft. On the same token, titles also don't matter as much as people think. Being a vice president is nice, but I know a lot of vice presidents who are great executives but not born risk takers. There are even some executives who do nothing but play corporate politics on the job. I'd rather choose a junior project manager who championed a new idea and brought it to market than a vice president who did little more than greenlight the project. Smart investors look beyond the resume and dig into the type of decisions and responsibilities the individual had at previous jobs. When vetting startups, my technique for evaluating the founders is to probe deeply and ask a lot of questions. I want to find out if the entrepreneur ever came up with any original ideas. If so, how did he get his coworkers and management to buy in? What roadblocks did he encounter along the way and how did he get around them? Were there decisions he made in the past that led to failures? And what did he learn from these setbacks? Questions like these allow me to see if this CEO can handle difficult situations, persevere through hardships, and use creativity to solve seemingly intractable problems. The other thing I look at is the founding team. Who did this CEO bring on board to launch the startup? If the entire team is made up of equally incredible people, I know there's something special going on. I like to ask the CEO how he came to know his co-founders. Did he take whomever was available, or did he seek out the best possible people? Could his employees easily have gotten six-figure jobs, but instead chose to work for nothing but equity? How did he persuade them that his startup was their best choice? Exceptional leaders are magnets for talent. People want to work for them and are willing to take huge, even irrational risks to do so. That's the type of person who can move employees to believe in the mission over money. That's how startups with little or no resources can outperform entrenched corporations and beat them at their own game. My philosophy is that no single person ever builds a billion-dollar business on her own. It's always the team that does it. The CEO is just the catalyst that kicks everyone into action. Jack Dorsey didn't build Square alone. Reed Hoffman didn't take LinkedIn public by himself. Pony Ma didn't grow Tencent without a lot of amazing people backing him up. If a CEO can't assemble an A-list team at the beginning, don't count on it happening down the road. It usually only gets worse. This is why the team should be the first test of a CEO's leadership ability. If the CEO can assemble a winning team with nothing but words and equity, she has the magic to make it happen. In the end, being able to lead is the single most important quality a CEO can possess. A solid team with an extraordinary leader can figure its way out of almost any situation. When assessing a team, I don't just ask about their backgrounds. I like to understand their relationship to the CEO. What makes this CEO so special? Do they really believe in her? What is motivating them? Are they willing to stick around when everything goes wrong? A strong team is one that's 100% committed and believes in the company's mission. It's not just a job. It's do or die for them. They will go down with the ship. That's the type of attitude that defines winning startups. Investors need to understand the team's psychology because how they think about the company and one another has more impact on the final outcome than anything else. I can't tell you how many teams appear excellent on the surface, but as soon as I peel back the layers, I can see they'll never make it past the first year. That's why I spend more time analyzing the team than anything else. Do you have a team of A-plus players and true believers? If not, you have some work to do. 53. Sizing up the market The next thing unicorn hunters look at is the market. If your market is too small, it will limit the growth of your startup. 
It's like trying to raise a whale in a fishbowl. The company can only grow as big as its market. This doesn't mean that companies that begin with a small niche market cannot expand beyond that, but it's important to see a clear path to the larger market. If there is no path, the startup will have to pivot at some point or stop growing, both of which can spell trouble. There are a number of reasons why VCs avoid small markets. First, it's a risk versus reward. A local bakery, no matter how tasty the croissants, can only make so much money. The risk may be low, but the rewards are limited. However, if the vision of the founders is to create a special chain of bakeries utilizing secret recipes and an innovative business model, then it gets more interesting. It's high risk to launch a national chain, but the rewards are exponentially greater. Another factor investors consider is the exit potential. Small, slow-growth businesses seldom, if ever, IPO, and acquisition offers are few and far between. Even if the niche company has an incredible new technology, the value of the technology almost never matches the value of a rapidly growing company targeting a big market. Major corporations, which have the money for large acquisitions, tend to focus on growth markets, not niches, without the potential for expanding to larger markets. Early-stage investors also need to consider follow-on investors. If they invest in a business with a small market, this automatically excludes later-stage venture capital. Institutional VCs are not interested in small exits. It's not their business model. They need supersized returns, and that means big markets and rapid growth. If a startup can't deliver this, Tier 1 VCs won't come in, and the startup will have trouble raising future rounds. Smart angels don't want to put money into a company knowing that few, if any, late-stage investors will follow suit. Last, big markets mean more mindshare. Few people hear of smaller startups, but everyone knows the top unicorns. Those logos on every VC's website are usually names that most of us recognize, not some tiny startup that sold for $25 million, even if the return was 10x. So, all things being equal, bigger is not only better, it's often the only logical option. Remember this when your startup is raising funds. If the market isn't big enough, don't count on venture capital. They aren't coming to your party. 54. Who's really your customer? One of the first questions I ask when a startup approaches me is, who's your customer? I once had an entrepreneur answer, women. I prompted him to say more, but all he said was that his startup targeted women, all women, and no more details followed. I wound up telling him I wasn't interested in investing. Why was I so quick to decide? Is it because I don't like women? No, I can assure you that I like women. My problem was that this CEO didn't know the customer at all. What did he mean by women? Elderly women? Teenage girls? Working mothers? Professional women? The customer is never just women. A startup must know exactly whom it is trying to reach and exactly why the customer wants to buy the product. How can a CEO build and market a breakthrough product if he doesn't even know who his customers are? It's critical for you to understand absolutely everything about your customers. What do they value most? Are they young, old, or middle-aged? How much money do they have? What type of cars do they drive? What type of movies do they watch? What are their goals and desires? The more you know, the greater your chances of success. If you run a B2B, business-to-business -business startup, the process is fairly straightforward. Spend a lot of time with your customers. Get to know them. Take them out to lunch. Find out about their lives, families, businesses, problems, and ambitions. Make note of everything. The more you know and the earlier you know it, the better. You shouldn't do this alone. You should get your entire team involved in the process of gathering, compiling, and analyzing customer data. Here are some questions to ask your customers. Why do you need this product? Why does your company need this product? Who needs to approve the purchase of this product? Who are all the stakeholders in your organization? How important is the product on a scale of 1 to 10? How does it compare to the competitors? If it didn't exist, what alternatives would you use? Are you willing to place your order now? If not, when? These are just a few of the many questions you should be asking.
Whenever possible, it's a good idea to record these interviews on video or audio. If they are overwhelmingly positive, you can show them to angels and VCs. They can act as early proof that there's a real need for your product. If you have an online application, it's often better to rely on analytics tools than in-person interviews. This is because users will often say one thing and do another. What matters is what they do. An analytics software can show you precisely what's happening inside your app. Whether you put up a landing page with a video or release a minimum viable product, you can mine data from users, gauge how they react, and use this to make sure you're on the right track. Smart investors will always want to see this data before placing their money. When I'm vetting a startup, I like to gain full access to the analytics platform because it's important to review and verify everything firsthand. I pay special attention to the DAU, daily active users, MAU, monthly active users, retention rate, engagement patterns, virality, and growth. If the startup hasn't launched yet or has no online component, there may not be any analytics. Without data, it's a blind bet. In this case, I often resort to asking a bunch of questions. How does the CEO know her business will be successful? What proof does she have? What experiments has she run? If the CEO hasn't attempted any experiments and has zero data, this is a red flag. It usually means the CEO is going completely on faith and doesn't understand how to validate a market. In this case, I'd be reluctant to recommend this startup to investors. Even at a very early stage, your startup should be accumulating data, running experiments, and figuring out if there's a real product market fit. If you aren't doing this, that's a problem. You should not be spending all your time building your product, fundraising, generating hype, and going to conferences. In the end, those won't matter half as much as understanding your customer. The reason most startups fail isn't because their product doesn't function as promised or because they didn't get enough money or press. It's because they haven't identified what their customers really want, and the only way to do this is to know your customer inside and out. 55. Tapping the Trends I like startups that tap into trends. Nothing is more powerful than getting in at the beginning of an emerging wave and riding it all the way to the bank. A trend is like having a jet engine on your back. It can propel your tiny company forward with incredible speed and force. Most successful startups tap into some sort of trend, whether it's a tech trend like AI, blockchain, or DNA editing, or a consumer trend like yoga, extreme fitness, or health food. Unicorn hunters are always on the lookout for companies that have identified a new trend ahead of everyone else and are positioned to exploit it. Take Shake Shack, the fast food chain. They rode the gourmet burger trend all the way to an IPO. Stitch Fix is another trend-setting startup. Using fancy algorithms, big data, and hip stylists, they became experts at hand-picking clothing that fit their customers' personal tastes and needs, and then shipping it directly to them every month. Stitch Fix led the hyper-personalized clothing trend to an IPO. Similarly, Pluralsight identified software training as the next big thing and turned it into an even bigger business. With more than 6,000 courses on everything from C-Sharp to JavaScript, its IPO came in at nearly $2 billion, and Pluralsight's founders did all of this without a dime of venture funding. If a startup can identify a trend ahead of everyone else and take on the market leadership role, it can leverage a growing customer base as well as becoming a press darling. The media is always on the lookout for the next hot thing. And if they spot a startup blazing the trail, it can become the poster child for the trend itself. This means an enormous amount of free marketing. For a cash-strapped startup, there's no better way to build a brand quickly. Just look at RX Bar, which piggybacked on the healthy protein bar craze. When the founder, Peter Rahal, asked his father for money, the reply he got was, You need to shut up and sell 1,000 bars. That advice proved to be pretty sagacious. With just $10,000 of their own money, Ray Hall and his partner, Jared Smith, launched the company and began making their health bars by hand. It was an entirely bootstrapped operation. I'm not a designer, but Jared and I knew that we needed to get to market as soon as possible. So we opened up PowerPoint and created the best packaging we could, Ray Hall says. 
With their first protein bars in hand, they went around to local coffee shops and grocery stores and offered them for free. We didn't care, says Rahal. We just wanted people to start trying them out. Lack of designers, manufacturing, and a marketing budget didn't matter because they caught the wave. People just loved their product and started buying. We knew we were onto something pretty quickly, admits Rahal. It was the right thing at the right time. Instead of protein bars packed with sugars and other unhealthy and unknowable ingredients, RX Bar kept it simple, putting all the ingredients in bold type on every bar. A typical bar would announce in big, bold print, three egg whites, six almonds, two cashews, two dates, no BS. That resonated with their customers. The demand was so powerful that they couldn't keep up with sales. The bars marketed themselves. Word spread faster than they could scale, and the press loved them. They raised no venture capital or outside funding. They just kept it going until Kellogg stepped in and acquired the company for $600 million. How's that for tapping a trend? Trends also afford startups the opportunity to build a community. Trends happen because people are passionate and excited about something. I even put my cell phone number on the package, says Ray Hall. I wanted to make sure I was as accessible as possible. Feedback is how we grew. You may not want to put your personal phone number on every product, but it shows how committed the founders of RX Bar were toward engaging their community. If a startup is early in the trend, it can become a de facto community hub. This puts it in the driver's seat. The startup can produce events, run conferences, create meaningful content, build a platform, engage customers, spark dialogue, and in the process, grow the entire market. If the founders do these things well, they can create a bond between the customer, their brand, and the trend itself. This will put them in the market leadership position, while competitors late to the market will be seen as copycats. Smart founders will make it their mission to completely own the trend. This means doing everything they can to take the helm and steer the trend in a positive direction. The trend's success becomes the startup success. Smart startups actively seek to prevent scandals, protect customers, provide guidance, and build loyalty. The more the startup invests in the trend, the more it gives back in return. An investor can't ask for a better opportunity than this. 56. Good versus Great I want to find out early on if a startup can be number one in its market. If I don't feel confident that the team has the potential to lead the market, my interest diminishes. Why is this? Because it's a winner-take-all world. The more scalable the business, the easier it is for the company with the best products to dominate. This is because everyone gravitates toward greatness. If there are two competing products and one is great while the other is good, which will you choose? Great usually wins. Who wants the second best search engine, chat application, smartwatch, or painkiller? Why choose something that isn't as good? Just to be clear, if a lower quality product is half the price, then many people will settle for less. That's because the greatness of a product is the sum of all its attributes, including price. OnePlus phones are not as nice as iPhones, but for the price, they're a great value. Great products are category killers. They eat everybody else's lunch. This is why Google dominates search and is worth exponentially more than its closest competitors. The same is true of Apple, Amazon, Facebook, PayPal, Netflix, and most other top performers. What's the value of Amazon's closest rival in the United States? Or the value in China of the next biggest social network after WeChat? In any highly scalable business, the number one player tends to capture the lion's share of customers. Some investors may be tempted to avoid the market leaders because their valuations are so high and instead invest in laggards with heavily discounted valuations. Unicorn hunters know this is not a wise move. It may feel like a bargain at the time, but in the long run, the market leaders usually end up accelerating at a faster pace, leaving everyone else as tiny specks in the rearview mirror. This is especially true of platforms, which become more valuable the more people use them. As a startup founder, if your goal is to be number three in the market, give up right now. If you aspire to be number three, it probably means you'll wind up number seven, eight, or nine, if you're lucky. Those startups may not even survive.
If you don't honestly believe you can be number one in your market, then get out before you waste more time and money. Pick something you can win at. When Snapchat launched, Facebook was already the dominant social network on the web, so going head-to-head wasn't a winning strategy. Instead, Snapchat focused on mobile communications. Back in 2010, Facebook wasn't yet a dominant player in this market. That meant the playing field was open. Snapchat targeted teens who wanted a free way to text and share photos. The disappearing messages made it even more attractive to this demographic. Snapchat also worked not only on phones but also over Wi-Fi, so teenagers without a data plan could still use it. The app turned out to be a winner for its investors. Snapchat wound up going public in 2017. On its first day of trading, the stock soared 44%, valuing the company at $28 billion. If you look across product categories, you will always find one company that owns not only the space but also the name itself. For example, when most people think of CRM, customer relationship management, the first name that pops into their heads is Salesforce. For databases, it's Oracle. For marketing automation, it's Marketo. Inbound marketing is dominated by HubSpot. SurveyMonkey is the survey king. Zendesk leads customer support. DocuSign is equivalent to e-signatures, and Zora owns subscription billing. You get the idea. By owning the name, leaders in any market obtain a huge advantage. They have greater brand recognition. They garner the most media attention. They appear more trustworthy, and they can offer more value, especially if there's a network effect. All of these add up to enormous barriers to entry, making it virtually impossible for a competitor to catch up. Another key factor is scalability. In highly scalable businesses, a small head start can rapidly expand into a huge lead. Once a market leader with a superior product moves ahead of its competitors, it will gain momentum. It has an easier time raising capital. It can take advantage of economies of scale. Its brand becomes even more valuable, and it can fuel its growth by reinvesting more and more of its resources into sales and marketing. We see the story being played out over and over again in Silicon Valley. Even if competitors come out with better products, it doesn't matter. Once a company is established as the market leader, it owns the space. The graveyard is littered with corpses of PC operating systems companies that tried to displace Microsoft. Apple was nearly one of those. If it were not for Steve Jobs returning to the helm and pivoting the entire company into online music, Apple may have died. That radical move is what saved it and opened the way for the iPhone, which in turn boosted Mac sales. The fact is that customers hate switching and will stick with the leader whenever possible. That's why giants like Alibaba and Amazon just keep getting bigger, gobbling up market share while their competitors struggle to survive. For a startup, good is never good enough. You need to be great. So I want to ask you a question: Is your product truly great? If not, it's time to start over, just like Steve Jobs did. Fifty-seven. What's your secret sauce? One question I enjoy asking founders is, "What's your secret sauce?" I want to know what makes their startup special. If they reply, "Well, we're like Product X, but we have this amazing feature," my heart sinks. I don't care how amazing that feature is. I need to hear what makes their startup so incredible that it will redefine the product category. I want to see something unique that sets the company apart from everyone else. That's the only way for a new entrant to break through. Listen carefully. I need you to understand this. There are only two ways for a startup to crack a market. If it doesn't do one of these two things, it will never rise above the noise. It must either be exponentially better than the competition. Or else, it must be radically different. Let's start with exponentially better. To truly leapfrog competitors, a startup needs to innovate in a way that makes its product so much more valuable to its customers that they cannot afford to stick with what they are currently using. People don't enjoy switching products. No one wants to learn anything new. There's a huge amount of inertia in the market. The best way to get customers to abandon one product and try another. Is to make them feel like they can't live with the status quo. Apple did this when it launched the iPhone. It was ten times better than any other phone on the market. 
The user experience blew the competition away, and that's why this company, which had never produced a hit phone, could steal the market share from entrenched giants like Nokia, Motorola, and BlackBerry. Google is a similar case. Its search engine was significantly better than the closest competitor. It delivered the results that users wanted but weren't getting. This helped Google roar past the established players, leaving Yahoo, InfoSeek, AltaVista, and others eating their dust. If Google had only been slightly better than the competition, it might not exist today. Skype is another example. It didn't invent VOIP, Voice Over Internet Protocol. The technology had been around for years, but the phone companies didn't see a need for it. They had monopolies and could charge their customers outrageous fees for long-distance calls. Along comes Skype, offering calls that were inferior in quality, required specialized software, and didn't even work over a phone. People needed a PC. So, how did Skype win? It won by making the calls free. To many customers, especially those calling overseas, this was exponentially better. They were spending a small fortune on long-distance calls to family and friends, and they jumped through almost any hoop to save that money. As a result... Skype had no problem competing with the big players. If a startup can't provide exponentially more value to its customers, then it needs to offer something radically different. By this, I mean offering value that customers cannot get from anywhere else. Let me give you a couple of examples. There were already a lot of instant messengers available when a startup called Slack launched its own service. Facebook Messenger, Snapchat, Instagram, and WhatsApp dominated the market, and competing instant messengers began dropping dead like flies. But that didn't stop Slack. It not only survived, it grew into one of the Valley's top unicorns. How did this happen? Slack used the same technology as everyone else, but offered a totally different value to its customers. Instead of being a personal instant messenger, it was designed from the ground up as a business collaboration tool targeted at enterprise customers. It's not Facebook Messenger, Instagram, or WhatsApp with an extra feature. It's a business tool. Most people use Slack right alongside their personal instant messengers. It doesn't compete with them because it offers a fundamentally different core value. Another startup that won by being different is Affirm, a consumer finance company. When Max Levchin launched the company, there were already plenty of payment and financing options available for U.S. consumers, including Visa, MasterCard, Discover, PayPal, eCheck, debit cards, and so on. Retailers didn't have any incentive to add yet another one to their growing list, and consumers weren't demanding one. So, how did Affirm break into the market? It did it by offering something none of the competitors had thought of, a simple, elegant way to make flat monthly payments at the point of purchase online. It was a loan where the interest was built into an easy-to-grasp payment plan. This one innovation took off like wildfire, and a firm grew into a healthy unicorn. If you analyze enough tech startups, you will see a similar pattern. If the startup isn't exponentially better or radically different, it's extremely hard to crack a category and grow into a unicorn. That's why you should look at your startup and ask yourself, what's our secret sauce? If you don't have one, you better start cooking something up. 58. Business Models Made Simple Here's my 10-minute MBA course on business models. There are really only two business models that work. One, either the customer pays you directly, or two, an advertiser pays you. All other business models are subsets of these two. Let's start with a customer paying you. For this model to work, the average amount customers pay over their lifetime using your product or service must be significantly more than the average customer acquisition costs plus cost of goods. The bigger the profit margin, the healthier your business. When investors see fat margins combined with a big market, they start lining up to get in on the deal. VCs don't care if the startup loses money in the short term, as long as they can see a clear path to high profitability down the road. By giving the company money now, they are betting it will become the market leader and turn into a cash cow. We all hear about viral growth, but in reality, very few products manage to grow virally. 
At some point, almost every startup must have a significant marketing budget to expand beyond the early adopters. Because customer acquisition is almost never cheap, a startup needs to extract a lot of money from each customer. There are two ways to do this. Either the startup charges a one-time fee up front and uses the profits to fuel growth, or the startup charges incremental fees over a longer period. The problem with one-time purchases of non-consumable goods is that the customer only pays once, and then it's over. No more money. A good example of this is selling a couch, lawnmower, or hairdryer. The company gets paid upon purchase, then typically doesn't hear from the customer again unless there's a problem. This is a suboptimal business model for a startup. It costs a lot to acquire new customers, and the startup won't see another penny unless it can figure out something else to sell that customer. For startups, it's costly to develop and market a continual stream of new products. The one-time purchase business model is better suited for established brands that have name recognition, strong distribution channels, long-term marketing partners, and economies of scale. Even if the startup develops a new product that is radically different from anything on the market, it's usually not long before rivals copy it. They'll begin by undercutting the price to gain market share. We see this in consumer electronics. It's a brutal business as low-cost copycats drive down the price. This is why hardware startups have such a tough time. Unless they have proprietary technology that cannot be copied or some other significant barrier to entry, their margins quickly erode, leaving them little money to build their brand and grow the business. To complicate matters, copycats are getting faster and smarter. In today's hyper-connected world, if a product is at all successful, in a matter of months, a wave of clones will appear on the market. I've seen this firsthand. A startup spends a year or more innovating and comes up with a cool new gadget, puts it on Kickstarter or Indiegogo to raise money and awareness, only to have copycats selling the same thing at a lower price in no time. For this reason, smart investors tend to shy away from companies with one-time purchase models. It's a rough business. Instead, unicorn hunters like to focus on startups with a strong recurring revenue model. They don't care what the business is. It can be software, hardware, food, medicine, transportation, or anything else. What matters is whether the company can deeply monetize its customers. Let's go over four popular ways to monetize customers. Subscriptions, consumable purchases, premium upgrades, and marketplaces. 1. Subscriptions When the subscription model works, it provides a steady, predictable revenue stream. Investors love this because they can easily extrapolate from the past data and predict future growth. Most subscriptions have a monthly or annual fee. Unlike a one-time purchase, the initial cost is low or even free, meaning customers can try it out to see how they like it at little risk. The beauty of this model is that over time, even a relatively cheap subscription can add up to far more than a large one-time purchase. Good examples of this model are Zendesk, GitHub, New Relic, and Domo. These are all enterprise software-as-a-service unicorns with robust subscription models. It also works for consumer products and services. Just look at Verizon, Netflix, and Dollar Shave Club. 2. Consumable Purchases Almost nothing beats selling consumables, because once you get customers hooked, they keep buying, sometimes for the rest of their life. Whether the consumable is a particular brand of deodorant, a favorite restaurant chain, or power-ups in a game, this model scales far better than a one-time purchase. Good examples are Pfizer's cholesterol-lowering drugs, Huggies diapers, and Centrum vitamins. I particularly like it when consumables are tied to a larger one-time purchase. For example, games for Sony's PlayStation, K-Cups for Keurig's coffee makers, ink for HP printers, and replacement toothbrush heads for bronze electric toothbrushes. Once customers invest in the initial purchase, they become psychologically locked into the brand's consumables. 3. Premium Upgrades This is when a company sells add-on products or features. A good example is when you download an app and have to pay a one-time fee to unlock advanced features. I'm not crazy about premium upgrades as a business model for most products. 
The problem is that there are only so many upgrades most products can offer, and then the revenue stops. However, for certain products, such as card games, it can work incredibly well. For instance, a card game like Magic the Gathering can offer a virtually unlimited stream of premium upgrades, making it a cash cow. 4. Marketplaces Creating a marketplace is arguably the most powerful business model of all because it scales so well. Marketplaces typically work by taking a small cut of every transaction. These small fees add up as the number of transactions increases over the lifetime of its customers. These businesses gradually turn into cash machines, netting sizable profits. Even better, marketplaces are highly defensible. Getting buyers and sellers to engage on a new platform is incredibly difficult, but once a company achieves critical mass, the network effect kicks in. This means the more buyers and sellers participating in the marketplace, the more valuable it becomes to everyone. Once a marketplace like Amazon.com, Alibaba's Taobao, eBay, or Airbnb achieves dominance, competitors find it almost impossible to catch up. Now let's talk about the second primary business model, advertising. For advertising to work, it typically requires two things, lots of users and high engagement. Most online ads sell for tiny amounts of money, which means the startup will need millions of active users before the ad model begins to generate significant revenue. The second part of the equation is engagement. The more frequently users return and the more time they spend, the higher the revenue. Facebook and other social networks are good examples of companies ideally suited for the online ad model. The ad model breaks down when there aren't a lot of users or the users don't engage deeply. I had a startup founder come to me and say, I'm going to use an ad model. But when I asked how often a typical user would engage with his app, the founder estimated it would be once every two weeks. I had to tell him this wasn't going to fly. If users aren't engaging multiple times a week, it's going to be pretty tough to grow a large business. The ad model is simple, but it only works for a small fraction of startups. These tend to be mass appeal media and social media startups. If a startup is not in that category, chances are the ad model isn't right. To sum up my 10-minute course, let me say that there is no single best business model. It comes down to the business itself and the needs and desires of the customers. Many startups experiment with various business models before picking the right one for their product. For investors, it doesn't matter what the model is as long as the startup deeply monetizes customers, nets a sizable profit, and scales. 59. Business Model Emulation Within months of Uber making headlines with its innovative business model, Silicon Valley was Uberizing their business plans. There was the Uber of laundry, Uber of car washing, Uber of house cleaning, Uber of parking, Uber of body massages, even the Uber of ice cream. Each startup wanted to take Uber's secret sauce and use it in another line of business. Just press a button on your smartphone and the service would magically appear. Unfortunately, most of these are out of business now. Business model emulation looks great on paper, but it seldom works. The reason is that on the surface, the two businesses may appear to be similar, but when you dig deep, you start to notice fundamental differences. It only takes one missing element to invalidate the model. In the case of Uber, it worked so well not only because it was convenient for the user, but also because it had all of the following traits. Recurring revenue stream. Customers make frequent purchases and remain engaged. Lifetime value of customers is higher than customer acquisition costs and cost of goods. Marketplace network effect created by matching drivers with customers. Difficult to circumvent Uber and go directly to the driver. Better service than traditional taxis. Easy for customers to provide feedback on drivers and service. Excellent user experience. It's the combination of all of the above that makes Uber such a valuable company. Startups that transpose this model onto other services, like house cleaning and massages, found that leakage and retention were real problems. 
Startups that tried to deliver on-demand ice cream, perform car washes, or park cars using Uber's model discovered that the unit economics didn't work out. A lot of these startups raise substantial amounts of funding only to fall flat on their faces. The same thing happened with Warby Parker's direct-to-consumer model. Warby Parker has done extremely well selling eyeglasses directly to customers online. After this success, hundreds of copycats tried to apply the same model to selling suitcases, home furnishings, jewelry, toothbrushes, bras, socks, tampons, you name it. There was an entrepreneur for practically every consumer product category out there trying to build their online brand and steal customers away from more established brands. Some of these were highly successful. Dollar Shave Club led the way with an online subscription for men's razors. This personal grooming company leveraged a hip image, viral videos, and low prices to grow rapidly and wound up selling to Unilever for $1 billion. Other startups in different categories weren't so fortunate. They each launched trendy brands that appealed to millennials, designed cool products and packaging, and leveraged social media and viral videos. The majority of them are now struggling or out of business. What went wrong? Why did some succeed while others failed when all of these startups used similar tactics? The reason is that not all product categories are equivalent. They each have their own economics. In the case of Warby Parker, the eyewear market has been dominated by Luxottica, which owns most of the top brands and retail chains. This pseudo-monopoly allowed Luxottica to charge a sizable premium. Warby Parker disrupted the market by slashing prices while offering equivalently stylish products. The lower prices encouraged consumers to refresh their look throughout the year, which meant buying more glasses and boosting Warby Parker's recurring revenue. Dollar Shave Club took a similar approach. Gillette dominates the razor business and marks up its products accordingly. By offering their own branded blades at a discount, Dollar Shave Club was not only a hip alternative to Gillette, but a good value as well. It was also convenient to never run out of blades. They just showed up in the mail each month. This subscription model enabled Dollar Shave Club to lock in customers, monetize them over a long period, and spend more on customer acquisition, thus creating a virtuous cycle of growth. Many of the other markets don't share these attributes, and that's why startups in those markets are struggling. If there are already dozens of products on the shelves in all price ranges, it's hard for a startup to enter the market and distinguish itself. For example, there is already a wide selection of underwear and dental floss on the market in all price ranges. Simply adding another option isn't always enough. It might have an appealing new aesthetic and maybe even a convenient subscription model, but that usually won't lure customers away from what they already know and trust. This is why I caution entrepreneurs about simply appropriating a business model and running with it. If you run too fast without looking where you're going, you risk tripping and falling hard. You need to deeply analyze the market and all the factors that go into forming the business model before you conclude that emulation is the right path to go down. Sometimes it's easy to get funded by saying, we're the Warby Parker of fountain pens. But you have to be careful. Are you really the same? 60. Locking in Customers Another common characteristic of unicorns is their ability to lock their customers into long-term relationships. The stronger the bond, the harder it is for competitors to steal away their customers, which results in higher profit margins and long-term growth. Locking in a customer typically means getting customers to invest their time and resources into the product or service. A good example is a social network. The more deeply users engage, the more valuable it becomes. When users invite their friends, establish relationships, upload photos and videos, create pages, form groups, and conduct business on the social network, they are making an investment. If users choose to leave the social network, they stand to lose this investment. The result is a high switching cost, which can act as a huge barrier to entry for competitors. This isn't just true for social networks. It's true of many successful unicorns. These companies have built entire ecosystems around their products that can make switching a painful process. 
Take Automatic, which runs WordPress.com, one of the most successful blogging platforms in the world. Once customers choose WordPress.com, they begin to upload their content and build their websites. This investment in time and creativity binds the user to the platform. In addition, customers can tap into the thousands of third-party plugins and themes. The more WordPress add-ons they use, the harder it is to leave, because these won't necessarily be available on other platforms. One common attribute of locking in customers is the ability to get them to invest their time into the product or service. With software, users typically spend time learning it, customizing it, and integrating it into their workflows and lives. This makes it increasingly hard to cut ties down the road. Look at HubSpot. Once customers buy into HubSpot's ecosystem, they begin using it to deploy content, attract and engage customers, manage relationships, and grow their businesses. By the time companies are done integrating HubSpot into their workflows, it's hard to consider moving to another platform. Locking in customers has been how most of the biggest software companies in the world became so profitable. Microsoft did it with the Windows operating system. SAP has done it with its enterprise resource planning and business services. Oracle did it with its database management system. And Zendesk did it with its integrated customer support solutions. After adopting any of these platforms, it's tough to contemplate backing out. The software tentacles can reach so deep into a company's business processes and organization that the effort to unwind becomes greater than any benefit competitors can offer. This helps guarantee high profit margins over a long period, which investors love. 61. Hardware versus Software I am often asked whether investors prefer hardware or software startups. My answer is that software beats hardware almost every time. There are several reasons for this. First, hardware is hard. It's difficult to develop. Most first-time entrepreneurs don't realize how risky it is to bring new hardware to market. It's not like an app that you can continually tweak and improve. Once you begin manufacturing, costs can escalate and one miscalculation can sink a cash-strapped startup. That's why we've seen so many Kickstarter and Indiegogo projects raising money but never shipping. The inexperienced founders often underestimate the time, money, and complexity. Some of this risk can be mitigated if the company brings on expert help early in the process. Indiegogo has moved to this model by connecting entrepreneurs with partners who are experts in design engineering, manufacturing, and distribution. This is helpful, but it's only the first hurdle. Making a profit is the truly tough part. Another reason I'm hesitant about hardware is that it's difficult to lock in a customer with hardware alone. After customers buy a gadget, they typically disappear. There's no ongoing relationship or investment customers have to make beyond the initial purchase. Without this relationship, the startup suffers. It can't monetize the customers deeply, upsell future products or add-ons, and get feedback. The best way around this is to connect hardware to the Internet using software. That's why there was so much enthusiasm around Internet of Things. It was supposed to change everything, giving hardware the same power as software. However, despite all the hype surrounding Internet of Things, there have been relatively few success stories. This is because most startups are either good at hardware or software. I seldom find a startup proficient in both. And if the startup fails to execute well on either, the product won't live up to its promise. This invariably means longer development times, higher costs, and more moving parts that can get screwed up in the process. Another reason why consumer Internet of Things hasn't taken off, like everyone predicted, is that most people aren't interested in having an ongoing relationship with their toaster, microwave oven, or thermostat. In addition, many Internet of Things devices are more difficult to use than what they're replacing. No one but a gadget freak wants to learn how to interact with a new device unless it provides significant value over existing solutions. If the device doesn't do something extraordinary, what's the point in learning to use it? Who wants to download new apps and figure out new interfaces? Often the best devices are the ones that don't require any learning curve. Internet of Things still has some ways to go.
In the early days, everyone was raving about how Nest, the smart thermostat company, would provide the gateway into the connected household. That's why Google purchased the startup for $3.2 billion. After this acquisition, venture capital showered consumer Internet of Things startups with money. They were the next goose that would lay the golden eggs. Unfortunately, most of the eggs ended up rotten. Even Nest hasn't turned out to be what Google imagined. It continues to underperform. The deep monetization and engagement with consumers never materialized. The one smart home product that broke through was Amazon's Echo, which was originally supposed to be a voice-controlled music jukebox. It is now expanded into a voice platform for the home called Alexa, with an entire ecosystem of apps and developers. Alexa and its offspring offer significant value to users, including accessing almost everything on the web through voice controls. Alphabet, Alibaba, Microsoft, and countless other companies have piled on with their own competing products. Even with the success of Alexa and its clones, it's still hard to monetize Internet of Things. Getting people to pay for a subscription or consumables isn't easy. It can't be slapped on top of just any connected device. The model has to be intrinsic to the value it provides. If there isn't significant value accrued over time, a subscription makes no sense. Who really wants to pay a monthly subscription fee for using a smart vacuum, lock, or blow dryer, let alone a connected light bulb or toilet? On the enterprise side, things look rosier. Industrial Internet of Things, which combines hardware with software to solve critical business problems, can offer value to large and medium-sized enterprises. This is an area that will become increasingly promising as manufacturers, transportation companies, and other businesses adopt Internet of Things. If startups can identify difficult business problems and provide solutions with a combination of hardware and software, they have the potential to create scalable models that justify venture funding. Hardware is most valuable when it can enable a startup to enter a new market and capture the leadership position ahead of competitors. I consider hardware to be the Trojan horse. If it can get the customer to bring a product inside the gates while the software stealthily takes over, that's a winning combination that investors will back. 62. When do patents matter? I have had heated arguments over the value of patents with startup founders. Yes, I know that companies like Qualcomm, 3M, and Intel have built their market dominance on incredible patent portfolios. But for most startups, especially software startups, I believe the majority of patents filed are worthless. It's rare for patents to become extremely valuable. When I look at startups and dig into their patent portfolios, I'm often dismayed. Just because a startup has filed 10 patents doesn't mean they are useful or effective. Anyone can file a provisional patent and get it approved. But what matters is how that patent gives the company a significant edge over competitors. Just take a look at Jawbone, the startup that produced Bluetooth earpieces, wireless speakers, and fitness trackers. It raised $900 million from investors and had an extensive patent portfolio. Despite being an early entrant into the market and filing hundreds of patents, the startup failed because of quality control issues, production problems, and poor products. Jawbone tried to save the company by filing patent suits against Fitbit, but this Hail Mary didn't work. The fact is that patents are seldom enough to keep a sinking ship afloat. When I analyze patents, I always ask myself, does this patent provide a real barrier to entry? Is this patent essential to doing business in the space? Can this patent be used to block competitors or extract a licensing fee? How hard is it to work around this patent? I need to know the answers to these questions before assigning any real value. The second problem is that having a great patent portfolio is expensive. To develop a strong patent takes time, research, and money. Hiring patent lawyers is a significant expense. Most early-stage startups simply don't have the resources to cover these costs, and even if they do, the benefits tend to lie years down the road. Usually, by the time the patents kick in, the startup has already either succeeded or died, and the patents played little or no part in this. Even if the patent is granted quickly, which typically isn't the case in the United States, 
most startups don't have the money to enforce the patents. Patent litigation is expensive and time-consuming. Litigation can get tied up in court for years. Often, the best a startup can do is trade patents with other companies to avoid lawsuits. For all these reasons, I think it's wise for most early-stage startups to invest their time, money, and resources into building their businesses, not filing patents. The reason most startups fail isn't because they lack patents. It's because they never figured out the right business model in the first place. Even if a startup has solid patents, those patents often get sold in a fire sale or handed to creditors if the company goes belly up. That's why smart venture capital tends to avoid startups with lots of patents but no real business model. If a startup's only viable model is to license its patents, that typically is not a good investment because patent licensing seldom turns into a billion-dollar business. It's usually much smaller. Businesses that rely solely on patent licensing don't perform as well as companies with real products that solve real problems. If you look at why unicorns have such high valuations, it's almost never because of their patents. Their value is primarily predicated on their market leadership and growth potential. WhatsApp is a good example of this. The instant messaging startup surprised everyone when it sold to Facebook for a whopping $19 billion. This was the fourth largest technology acquisition of the decade, according to USA Today. Even more surprising was the fact that WhatsApp did not bring Facebook any patents. WhatsApp is a great example of a startup that put 100% of its energy into developing its product and chose not to pursue patent protection. This is because patents wouldn't have added much value. The value was in their rapid growth, and they didn't get distracted from this focus. I'm not saying that filing patents is never a smart idea for startups. Some patents are extremely valuable. For startups developing capital-intensive businesses and new core technologies, such as semiconductors, new materials, medical devices, robotics, pharmaceuticals, ag tech, space tech, and biotech, patents can be critical and well worth the investment in time and money. A lot of these patents come out of universities, research centers, and large corporations because the cost is high and the research and development times are so long. These types of patents often have the potential to revolutionize entire industries, and filing them as soon as possible can make all the difference. That said, a typical bootstrap startup with little or no money seldom develops new core technologies, and therefore, filing patents early on doesn't always make sense. Even if the patent may generate sizable licensing fees down the road, that won't do much for a startup in the early stages. It all comes down to a careful cost-benefit analysis. My point is that startups shouldn't blindly file patents because they think that's what investors want to see. It may fool inexperienced investors, but not the type you really want to attract. So, what do I believe would be the optimal patent strategy for most startups? I recommend that bootstrap startups with no new core technologies focus on validating and building their business model first and file patents later. That's what matters in 9 out of 10 cases. Once the startup figures out its product market fit and is in a position to scale, that's when it should begin thinking seriously about patents. This should be part of a long-term IP strategy. The larger the business grows, the more important the patents will become. After the startup's business scales up, then it's in a better position to begin diverting resources toward patents and defensible intellectual property development. 63. Shoehorning Technology I see a lot of startups that grab the latest hot technology and paste it into their business plans. For example, as soon as AI became a buzzword, Every startup with an algorithm and database was suddenly peddling its artificial intelligence to investors, customers, and even the press. In most cases, these startups didn't alter what they were doing. They just leveraged the latest lingo to give their startup a quick makeover. At the top of the hype cycle, plenty of unsophisticated investors went along for the ride without really understanding the technology or the startup's business fundamentals. Even worse is when a startup attempts to shoehorn a technology into a business model that doesn't fit. This happened when the blockchain came into vogue. 
Everyone, including investors, was touting how the blockchain was bigger than the Internet and would change every business on the planet. Hungry entrepreneurs jumped on the bandwagon and began using the blockchain to power every possible type of business, social networks, auctions, movies, e-commerce, search, and on and on. Their thesis was that just by using the blockchain, they could outcompete the established players. In most cases, this was wishful thinking. Here's a conversation I had with a startup founder at the height of the blockchain madness. Should I use the blockchain to create our online rental marketplace? Why? Will it give you a competitive advantage over Airbnb or HomeAway? I don't know. Does it provide any additional value to the end customer? Not really. Does it make implementation easier or provide additional functionality? Well, it actually makes it harder. 